I'm Alex Blumenstein. And I am Jay Rosenthal, and this is your Peak Daily for Monday, May 30th, where we cover the biggest stories in Canadian and global business, finance, and tech, all in less than seven minutes. Alex, is this your last day on the pod? I think it is. You know, Brett should be back tomorrow. I assume the start of the week is a good day to, to come back to the office. He might not be. He might be away for one more day, so you'll find out. But hopefully, our peak pals will be rid of me by tomorrow morning, and you'll hear uh, your regular host, Brett Chang. I guess it depends how long screening takes at Pearson. It could take week. It could take a week from what I hear. So. Oh, exactly. Current wait times are three to four weeks to get back into the country. <laughs> very strict repatriation rules here. That's right, that's right. They heard about the podcast and they're going to they're gonna keep them in secondary screening. Well, it's been a pleasure whether this is your last day or not. What do we have for Peak Pals today? Well, for our first story, Canada could export natural gas to Europe by 2025. Our second story, the federal government has a plan to make internet access more accessible and affordable. And for our third story, Canada's financial watchdog prepares for climate catastrophe. Our first story starts with Canada and Europe linking and building. Natural Resource Minister Jonathan Wilkinson said we could start supplying Europe with liquefied natural gas, LNG, by 2025 ahead, signaling a new openness to accelerating LNG projects on the East Coast. Now, what happened? Well, Wilkinson pointed to two potential projects that could get Canadian LNG to Europe, one in New Brunswick and one in Nova Scotia, and indicated a readiness to accelerate their development. Natural gas would be piped to the East Coast export terminals where it would be cooled into its liquefied form before being shipped to Europe. Alex, why does this matter to peak bells, whether they are on the East Coast or not? Well, wherever they are, Canada does not currently have any LNG export terminals, which means we'll have to get building. So one is currently being developed in BC, which is slated to open in 2025, but this will mainly serve the Asian market. So another export terminal will be required on the East Coast to get energy to Europe. So this would provide relief for countries that now rely on Russia to meet their energy needs. So for context, Russia provided 41% of Europe's natural gas last year, but its invasion of Ukraine has caused European governments to start looking for more reliable and ethical energy suppliers. Last week, the EU unveiled a plan to dish Russian energy entirely by 2027. And over the weekend, EU officials said they were stockpiling natural gas because of fears that Russia could cut off supply in retaliation for, you know, what's going on there. So here's the thing from Canada's perspective. Canada has set ambitious climate targets, and ramping up LNG exports will make those more difficult to achieve. Any new energy development will almost certainly come with environmental strings attached. Minister Wilkinson said the East Coast plants will have to use greener processes and be capable of retooling to produce hydrogen in the future. Jay, can you hit us with a zoom out? I can't with the new slide whistle, but ah, I'll do it. Gee, I, I set you up for it. <laughs> I know. I don't travel. I don't have a slide whistle that I travel with, so let me try. And <laughs> apologies to Matt Rosenthal. Whoop! Russia's invasion of Ukraine has sent energy prices soaring and left European governments scrambling to buy oil and gas from anyone not named Vladimir Putin. And such a lucrative opportunity has made the federal government much more keen on building new energy infrastructure than it was in the past. For our second story, the federal government issued a policy that aims to make internet access more accessible and affordable by forcing large telecoms to provide smaller competitors with increased access to their high-speed networks. It's about time when you're extremely online like me, bandwidth gets uh, pretty costly. So Ottawa is now ordering the Canadian Radio, Television, Telecommunications Commission, which we call the CRTC, 
to craft new rules for providers like Bell and Rogers to fix sales practices and give more power to consumers and increase access to wireless infrastructure. So while the proposal may help smaller providers at least network capacity from bigger companies to resell services, the government is still facing criticism for reversing a decision last year that forced telecoms to charge resellers less. So a little give and a little take. And here's why it matters, Alex. Believe it or not, Canadians will spend an average of $58,000 on high-speed internet over their lifespan. This, according to a recent Money Supermarkets study that examined the cost of internet in 135 countries, 102 of which ranked as more affordable than Canada. So we're not in the top of that list, or maybe we are, but on the wrong side of it. High-priced internet results from either a lack of infrastructure or excellent infrastructure paired with a lack of competition. That sure sounds a lot like Canada, if you ask me. The government will work towards finalizing the decision by this fall, alongside its review of Rogers' proposed $26 billion takeover of Shaw, which has raised even more concerns about competition in Canada's wireless market over the last year. Our third story is a heartwarming mix of finance and climate catastrophe. The Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, sounds kind of scary, right? <laughs> Their Canada's top financial regulator has issued a new guideline to ensure financial institutions, we're talking banks, insurers, can survive potential future climate disasters. <laughs> Such a good story to start a Monday. So the watchdog recognizes the increasing risks that natural disasters caused by climate change pose to businesses is making sure the foundation that Canada's economy stands on is equipped to avoid financial collapse. In addition to steering financial institutions towards a low emissions economy, the guideline requires them to create and implement climate transition plans to address both short and long-term financial risks caused by climate change, including market uncertainty, high insurance claims, and damage to their physical locations, conduct climate stress tests on a regular basis to determine how business operations might be affected by specific catastrophic climate events and scenarios, plan business continuity and recovery measures in the case of catastrophic weather events and natural disasters caused by climate change, and institutions will also be required to disclose how they're handling climate risks, including publicly publishing the measures taken by their leadership teams, metrics used to assess risk, and the total emissions their businesses generate and vulnerabilities in their business models. Canada has seen an uptick in extreme weather, as has everyone else around the world, and in recent years here, forest fires in BC, droughts in the prairies, flooding out east, Let's not forget last weekend's tornado-y weather here in Ontario. Last year alone, insurance companies covered $2.1 billion in damages caused by natural disasters in Canada. Even as Canada races, well, sort of, remember the natural gas story earlier, to meet its net zero goals, it's necessary that the financial institutions handling our money and insuring our lives and property could continue to operate through cataclysmic events and during times of crisis. Peak Pals, thanks for having me for the last week or so. You know, it was a great time chatting with Jay. I feel like I talked way too much during this episode, but thanks for making us the most listened to and only daily Canadian business news podcast in the country. If you've got a second, why not follow this podcast on your app of choice and leave us a review. And if you want more Peak, make sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter at readthepeak.com. As always, thanks to Dale Richardson and 306 Media Productions for producing this episode. Thank you, Dale. And thank you, Alex. And Alex? Until we meet again and until Brett gets out of secondary screening at Pearson, he'll still be the co-host until I see him sitting in that seat. Well, well, let's, let's see. We'll find out. Good luck, Brett, and we'll see you, Alex.